Thank you, Father, that you are so great and good, that we can trust you no matter what's happening in our lives or in the world, that you are a constant and your love is, is active for us all. How gracious and kind you are to us, Lord, that you would love us while we were yet sinners. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would draw us near to yourself, that we would hear your voice, that we would respond to the things that you say, that we'd rejoice in your goodness, Lord. And we do pray that you would prevent any outbreak of illness, that you would uh, cause us to look to you in faith, to trust you, that you have all things in hand, and that our life and our health and our well-being and our future, it's all in you, and we can rest comforted in that knowledge. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that we would be your shining lights uh, now and forever for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27, if you'll turn there. It's always good to read along in the scripture. When I was putting the message together, I remembered one Sunday at church uh, in San Diego, I was on a car park detail uh, doing security. And uh, I saw an odd thing. There was this lady storming out of the building with her bewildered and pr- uh, probably her, her mother, I would assume. Um, and as she walked out, she was like, she's like, see, I told you. I told you they were going to ask for money. The church is always after the money. And I was like, oh, I know I had attended this church my whole life, and they, we had a practice of passing a bag and made it clear that it was for people that considered it their home, that there's no obligation or pressure, but this really incensed that woman. It offended her, and I thought, you know, it's, what, what's the thing that we find offensive or confronting? Um, a teaching that supports that we contribute our our money to support ministry or teachings, or the teachings of Christ concerning our need to love. I have never heard any, of anyone barging out of the church upset and offended because love was the topic that was preached on that morning. And it was so offensive. But really, when we, when we talk about the command of Christ to love, it's as if he's saying, jump and touch the sun. You cannot do the things that Jesus is telling you to do in your own strength. And it's quite brutal when we come under the teaching of Christ and we realize, wow, I I had this idea that I'm a pretty loving, generous, kind person, but he's exposing something in my heart. That's the truth about me. And it's something that is not at all in line with Christ. And, uh, And I believe it's infinitely easier to give away all of your money than to love other people how Jesus loves you. Way easier. It's not even comparable. And God desires more than compliance to his commands. But he wants us to have a new heart and a new mind through faith in him, marked by obedience. And we have to accept that truth that all these commands Jesus gives his disciples, we cannot do in our own strength or through our own effort or our development or being trained. We cannot accomplish the works of God through the effort of the flesh. And We also have to admit our unwillingness. So not only our inability, but really our unwillingness to want to do the thing that he tells us when he says, love your enemies. You're like, I can't do it, but I don't even want to. It's good for us to come to that place where we say, this is not in me. It's not in me to love like this. God, I pray that you would move me to repentance and a willingness 
to seek you. So today's passage, it picks up after the introductory portion of the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus addressed his disciples and he said that the poor, blessed are the poor, because theirs is the kingdom of God. The hungry, they would be filled. Those who wept would laugh. Um, And blessed are the reproached and the hated and excluded for his name's sake, because they could rejoice knowing that they had great reward in heaven. And so all those who sense their great lack, who sense their emptiness and found their satisfaction through Christ in faith, they would receive the reward. They would be satisfied. But he said, woe to the rich. Woe to um, those who are full and those who laugh now. Those who, without Christ, they find all the comfort they'll ever receive right now. And someday that's all going to be stripped away. It's on the heels of that. He continues in verse 27. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Not everyone that has ears listens. Not everyone who listens understands. And not everyone who understands takes it to heart. And so he says, I say to you who hear. He, he looks to all of us and he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Aren't we most likely to love people who love us? to do good to people who've done good to us, right? That's very natural. Makes perfect sense. We prefer the coach who compliments our progress and who says, I see such potential in you. That's why I'm investing is because I see the, I I know what you can become with the right training. And if you, you know, not the one who curses you out when you're doing your very best and who's always on you for doing the wrong thing, who singles you out and just says, you, you're just, you're a waste of space out there. And you're like, oh, oh, geez. Like, that's the coach you're supposed to love. Um, You know, we don't, is there anyone here who enjoys having what happens there happen to you? Where it says, those who curse you, those who spitefully use you. So they're not just using you, but spitefully using you. Um, Striking you, taking away your things. This is, we do not like this. I do not like this. Uh, I don't like being insulted and slandered. Once bitten, twice shy, we say. And we mark those who have hurt us in the past. We, um, we're like King Saul, who when he sensed people singing his praises of David, the singing the praises of David, it said he eyed him with suspicion from that day forward. And David had only done good, but he still eyed him because he, the people were liking him. And it says here that we should pray for our enemies, not against them. Pray for them, for their good. To be struck on the cheek in the Jewish culture, it was a very large insult. If you were to hit someone with the palm of your hand, it was half as offensive as striking someone with the back of your hand. So it, it made a real statement about um, your feelings toward that person. Instead of retaliating, he says, turn the other cheek, offer the other cheek to them. And then without caveats, he says, if someone takes your jacket, don't withhold the shirt that you're wearing. Trust in God that he's going to supply your needs. 
These are examples of practical ways to love someone, that when you're injured by them, you don't return in kind. When you're insulted by them, you don't insult them in kind. When someone takes something from you, you don't try to take something from them. You're marked by generosity and kindness. I don't know about you, I think about when I had the chance as a kid to invite people to a birthday party. I invited my friends. I invited people who were nice to me and actually liked being around me, not people who bullied me or called me names or stole my stuff. Those were not the people that I would invite to my party. It was people who I actually got on with and who got on with me. Our love is often wrapped up in approval, and our love is biased and limited. Now, Jesus is not creating a new law here to trump the old law, that we're obliged to respond in a particular way if someone slaps you, that you should go, hmm, and offer the other one. Now, you may do that as a joke, but it's not a new law that he's laying down here that we respond in a particular way to external stimuli, but under the gospel, our hearts, our motives, our actions, it's governed by God's love, the love that we freely receive from him, because it's an active, constant love that's by grace. It's not offered on the performance or our approval of these people. I mean, how could we have been saved if God's love worked that way? That his love is based upon approval of our current state and the way that we're behaving. When we were yet sinners, it says, Christ died for us. We couldn't care about God. He sent his own son to deliver us and save us. So righteousness, we know, it's not by an effort or by an attempt to keep the law, but by grace through faith in Jesus. That love towards God and this kind of love towards other people, it says something about you. It says that you are related to God. It says that you're becoming like him and rejoice in that fact that you are being made into the image of God, in the image of Jesus Christ as part of his body. We're becoming more like him. We don't become him. We become more like him. Please turn to Romans 13, starting in verse 7. You might be in that rare situation where you don't owe anyone anything. But we're all debtors to God. And it says here that we owe something to all people. And instead of being, you know, when you have a debt and that's kind of hanging over your head and you're like, oh, I'm finally released from the debt, it's really a privilege and an opportunity that we have the, that we have the ability to make good on what we owe as it says in Romans 13, 7, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all all are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you're walking in love towards your spouse, you're not going to commit adultery. If you're truly walking in towards love towards someone else, you're not going to want to kill them and to premeditate and think about how I can accomplish this and hide it.
Jesus did not, it says here, come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. And through faith in Jesus, we're born again, we're enabled now by the Holy Spirit to walk in love towards the unlovable, to do the things that we cannot do by the grace of God. Because we naturally hate cheaters, murderers, thieves, liars, greedy, right? Those are people that we would hate. And if we use the word often hate directed towards people, that word means to love less. We're not loving them like we're loving others. And so that should trigger something in your mind to say, I'm not walking in love towards people that I hate. If I hate those people. What's going to happen as we go through this passage? The Lord will show us how unloving we are in contrast to how loving he is and how we can love like him. Jesus says, Give to everyone who asks of you. From him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now, when you hear something like this, is there something in you, a little voice, that, that uh, it's, it's almost an automatic response? And I, I say that because it's in me. There's an automatic response that says, There must be an exception to this. Surely there is an exception. I need a little bit more information here. So you're telling me that if I have a million dollars and someone comes up to me and says, give me a million dollars, I have to give it to them? Well, to interpret it that way is to read it as law. We're not under a law. We're under the leading of the Holy Spirit. Love for God, love for others, that's to be governing my decision. It's not that I have to love, but I can love, and I want to by the grace of God. And it's possible that giving someone money is not a loving thing for them if they're caught in a cycle of um, addiction or excess. But I have to not think about what someone might ask me, but really, what's the reason for me holding back from meeting that request? Is it, but what about me? How will I live? Well, from Scripture, we know that God's going to provide everything for us. Or what about, I remember that time he insulted me. I remember that time I loaned him money. It was a loan, not a gift, and he didn't give it back. Or it's time this guy learned a lesson. I'm going to teach him a lesson. Now, if that's your motive for saying no, you're not walking in love towards that person because you're keeping records of wrongs. Because there is, there is vindictiveness, there is bitterness, there is unforgiveness there. Because we've given something to someone in the past, it doesn't mean they owe us or they must return what they've given to be on good terms with us to be able to ask that question again because they are unworthy of it. I wonder how many times have we come to God and asked him for assistance when we weren't doing the right thing. And even if we were, how good was it compared to God? Um, how many times has he given us things we were unworthy of, we didn't even thank him for, and we were ungrateful for? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. This stings, man. As I was reading this, I was like, wow. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It also keeps no records of your rights as far as all the right things you did you're like, I did this for them, I did that for them, I gave this to them. And you're thinking, you're trotting out all your reasons of the good things you've done. We shouldn't be keeping a record of that as if it's something. If we're trotting out all those ways that we've helped and it hasn't been returned to us, we're walking legalistically. We're not walking in love. 
Verse 31, and just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Jesus aims at the heart with what's commonly called the golden rule. As you want others to do to you, you do to them. Love considers others as better than ourselves, their needs as more pressing than our needs. Um, and our feelings are a personal gauge that can help us to govern our decisions or our, our, our dealings with other people. Um, but our, your preference isn't the end all. That doesn't mean you're walking in love if you're just, like for instance, I prefer bold, direct, um, almost blunt conversation rather than trying to dance around the point. And so because I appreciate a kind of a blunt remark, if I'm blunt to someone of a more sensitive nature and go, well, that's the way that I would prefer it, so it's perfectly justifiable that I should behave in this way towards them, that's not loving of them, right? When we realize that someone's been hurt by the things that we said or the way that we said them, it's not for us to justify, like, well, I wouldn't be offended if someone came up and said that to me, so therefore, I, I see no reason to repent, I see no reason to humble myself, because I'm right, and they're wrong. Is, is this, like, in there somewhere? Is it, can you identify with this? I think all, in all of us, there is a biased Pharisee who wants others to know we're right, for them to acknowledge they're wrong, and refuses to be the first to yield. And if we are the first to yield, it's something we remember, and we say, you know what, I'm the one who always has to apologize around here. I'm the one who, ha who is, like, the one who humbles himself first, and so I'm proud about it. And that's not right or loving. I mean, we are funny people. If we want a vivid example of what God's love isn't, we do not have to look beyond ourselves. We can just see it all just laid out for us perfectly. Because being nice, polite, and well-mannered, that's not loving. It's called being polite, nice, and well-mannered. Which is kind of a mask that we put up to hide the real truth, that we're not loving people. So Jesus, he's not holding back. He's talking again to his disciples. And he's saying, you guys are, it's implied by what he says, you tend to credit yourselves for loving like God when you're merely loving those who love you. Don't sinners do the same thing? People without the Holy Spirit, they love those who love them. They do good to those who do good to them. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 it's a great description of God's agape love. This is not found in man apart from God. It's not like God unlocks this in you. He, he has given it to you by his presence who lives within you. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. There's an absolute character of God's love based on his unchanging, righteous holiness. He is gracious, he is merciful, and so God's love is a certain way, and it's constant, extended to all people, because it springs from his goodness, not the worthiness of the recipient, 
It's, it's not based on feelings, but it's full of affection, full of care for the other above self. Our love, it's limited. It's like concentrated on the people closest to us. It's kind of like the, the heat from a fire that's stoked by when people are nice to you and good to us. It, it burns a bit hotter, and the people close by can sense that love, but there's a limit to it if you go far enough away. I mean, if you're by a campfire and it's a cold night, you've got to get pretty close to that fire. And that's how our love is, and, and it needs to be stoked or else it starts to die down. The royal law, written in Leviticus 19.18, it commanded people to love their neighbors. It didn't say anything about enemies like Jesus did. It says in Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. People were thinking, if I don't take vengeance, if I don't hold a grudge, I am by default obeying the command of God to love my neighbor as myself. But that's not love. Just because you haven't done something, love is about doing something. Jesus demonstrated his love, right? So if we love others, we will pray for them. We will be generous to them. We will bless them rather than cursing and trying to avoid them. Jesus showed God's love is without partiality, even to enemies. And if you notice that you're pretty much partial to everything, it's just normal. You go, you go to a, a, a restaurant, and there's not just one choice. There's lots of choices. And you're partial to one thing over another thing. What someone else would order, you're like, oh, I wouldn't think to order that, because why order that at a restaurant? Like when you buy oatmeal at a restaurant, why would you do that? Some people like it. That's cool. But, but you have a preference when it comes to movies and music and hobbies and shops you visit and people that you would think to invite over for a meal or those that you'd want to share a coffee with or have a chat. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's decisions that go through your mind. And usually it's just people that you know or people that you get on with or maybe something that you even need to um, address, an issue. But turn to James 2, 8 through 10. And I love the way that he writes this because he writes it in such a way to say, guys, you may think, you may justify yourself and think that you're loving like God, but in your flesh, you just can't. James 2, verse 8 through 10. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he is guilty of all. So he says, if you've really kept that law, if you really have, that's great. But if you show partiality, well, that law that you're using to justify the fact that you're loving, you've broken the whole law because you're showing partiality. And it's a sin. Even the smallest amount of favoritism, partiality of preferring one or another. If someone had asked me for something, I would say yes to them. But because it was them asking me, I said no. Making that judgment call upon the worthiness of the recipient. Thank God he's the one who justifies us by faith. That he gives us his love freely. Because under law, we are hopeless. We have no chance 
of being righteous before God. Back to Luke 6, 34. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful." It makes sense that businesses would loan to those who could repay them. Uh, a loan is different than a gift. And I've learned by loaning things that you, you, should not ex- you should loan them without the expectation that you're going to receive them in the same condition that you lent them, and you may not receive them back at all. It's just how it goes with loaning. Um, and so Jesus deflates the pride in people who were saying, well, I loan, you know, I'm very generous with my things. I loan to this person, I've loaned to that person. He says, well, what credit is to you if you're loaning to people? You've, you've kind of selected these people that you know are going to return it back. People that you trust, people that you know. So it's not because you're generous and gracious, it's because you're hoping to receive back the same. Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. And then he gives some practical examples of how to love our enemies. He says, doing good, lending, hoping for nothing in return. This teaches the love of God is connected to faith in God. If I'm going to walk in the love of Christ, it's going to require faith in Christ to do this. So it's not faith on the other person that they're going to return something, but it's faith in God that he's going to provide it whether they return it or not. And Jesus exposes my tendency, our tendency to do good and lend because we hope for something in return. And isn't it ironic that generosity can come from a heart of greed and selfishness and covetousness? That's just baffling to me how we can be all twisted up like this. Jesus was speaking to a a host who invited him to a feast. Jesus did not show partiality to his host. He told it like it was in Luke 14, 12. It says, Then he also said to the one who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Now, we can't know why this man invited Jesus to the feast, but Jesus said, you know, you would be blessed to invite the poor, the blind, the maimed, and the lame to a feast, uh, those who can't repay you. Again, this is not a new law. He's not saying that these are the only kind of people that you can invite to a feast. He is not saying it's wrong to invite your neighbors or your friends or a coworker or other people along to a meal. But he exposes the motive of the man for inviting Jesus, for inviting these high-powered people along. And how you should, he said, you should open up your house to outcasts, to people who can't repay you, not just people who can. And he says, no deed No good deed done for the glory of God will be forgotten. You'll be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. Jesus said, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. I started thinking, there's not really a fundamental difference between giving or inviting people 
um, showing them favor, inviting them over for the hope of returning something, whether the reward is on earth or the reward is in heaven. If we can be selfish about things on earth, we can also be selfish about our eternal reward. It's really about you. It's not about the glory of God, but you're like, well, I'm not going to do it because I'm getting anything back, but I'll have a reward in heaven. And so your hope is in that. But Jesus says, do it without the hope of return. But he also says, you will receive a reward. You will be richly rewarded for this in heaven. It can be a selfish, greedy motive to just, we can be greedy about heavenly rewards. Like, oh, I want that reward in heaven. I want it to be better. I want it to be best. I want it to be a full reward. But it's really about you, not about God and his glory. But he says, what's to motivate you is that not the reward or the promise of it, but you are like the Most High. You've been brought, because of who God is and your relationship to him, you've been brought into his kingdom. You've been accepted into his presence. It's not because you've earned it, but by his grace that we have a place in heaven. So when we love our enemies and we do good to them, hoping for nothing in return, that love that's now expressed in your life, maybe for the first time, it shows that you are God's and he is yours. That is evidence that you should celebrate. We're like, I invited, I, I gave it to my neighbor, but I didn't do it thinking I would get something back. It wasn't because I hoped for even a eternal reward. I did it for God and because I love him, because of the love he's shown me. And then he's like, that's where the reward is. That's where the benefits are. Continuing in verse 35, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. He is not saying the unthankful and evil people, that's your enemy, or they're out there. He's like saying, Ben? You, God's kind to the unthankful and evil. So I, have to, I want to own that because it's the facts. That is true. And what a privilege that our character, our decisions can resemble our maker, our creator who loves us. I don't think we even begin to realize how, how sinful and how wretched, how unthankful we naturally are. I, I looked up the definition for evil. Webster says, having bad qualities of a natural kind, mischievous, having qualities which tend to injury, having bad qualities of a moral kind, wicked, corrupt, perverse, wrong, as evil thoughts, evil deeds, evil speaking, unfortunate, unhappy, producing sorrow, distress, injury, or calamity. I'm like, well, that's pretty much humanity summed up pretty well. A lot of calamity, a lot of trouble, a lot of unhappiness. Now, uh, for those who watched that opening night of the NRL uh, Thursday, they, they put in a new captain's review, which allows the on-field captain to make a challenge based upon what they think during the game. So it was 19 minutes into the Bulldogs-Eels game that one of the captains made a challenge, a very ill-advised challenge, I might say. But um, one of the, the players, he was, um, the Eels players, it was said he knocked on. He's like, I did not knock on. I did not knock on. And the captain's like, oh, I'm challenging that. He didn't knock on. So then it's like, 
in slow motion, in high definition, from every angle conceivable, the whole nation saw this guy knock the ball on. And it was like the most obvious thing ever. And they're like, oh, that was a joke. What? That's a letdown. Like, we, we were expecting. So everyone at Bank West is like, oh, geez, that was shocking. But it's like, he didn't think he knocked on. The captain didn't think he knocked on. And it's like, I'm not evil. I'm not greedy. I'm not selfish. I'm not unloving. And God has something more, more revealing than HD. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. And he's saying, see, you're not, you're not as loving as you think you are. You're not as generous as you think you are. You're not as kind or thankful as you think you are. He didn't think he knocked on. We go, hey, my hands are clean. He's like, really? He shows us our hearts. And he does that so we can be restored to him. So we can go, yep, I got it wrong. And it's not just I did the wrong thing. I am wrong. There's something about me that's totally sinful, and I need God to change me. And I want to be changed. I want to to be right in his sight. Luke 6, 37. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus shows that the judgment of others, it leads us to being judged. Condemnation of others, it leads to us being condemned. Pardoning others, it leads to us being pardoned. Now, it's not in our nature to do this to enemies, and that's why I think Jesus camped on this enemy, because he, he didn't want people to think, taking, like looking at the best part of their lives or their closest friends and say, see, I'm loving because of how I deal with this person. They go, oh, well, it's the enemy you need to be examining, saying, how do you deal with that person? Are you loving to them too? Because that shows that you're a child of God. Because we don't see it among our friends and family so easily. Because we do judge people as wrong. And then the follow-up is we condemn that behavior, or we condemn them. And then we refuse to forgive. Because they haven't asked for repent. They haven't said that they were sorry. Or they haven't, they haven't shown enough contrition to justify me humbling myself to forgive them. Now, Jesus does not forbid judgment. Uh, that's to make a decision. That's really what judgment is. It's making decision. Um, but he said, it's, and we'll see this from various passages, that it was their hypocrisy in judgment that was the issue. Uh, in John 7, 24, it says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So not according to appearance, not according to what you can see. Paul tells believers they need to judge themselves in 1 Corinthians 11.31. It says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, the context of the Corinthian passage was he had just told them, hey, guys, you've got divisions, there's discord, you're, you're not receiving the, the communion meal, that love feast, worthily, because some of you are, are going hungry, you're eating before one another, some are drunk, some, uh, you're not 
like it's a love feast, but you're not showing love for each other and you're not discerning the Lord's body. And so you're drinking damnation to yourself. There's judgment now. And so many of you are weak and sickly and sleep. That means they had died. So he says, this is the cause for some of these problems within your congregation. So if you would judge yourselves, you wouldn't be judged. If you would look at your own life and say, am I eating and drinking worthily and repented, then the, you would be responding to the chastening of the Lord. So asking themselves, am I guilty of gluttony? Am I guilty of drunkenness? Have I been excluding others? Have I been clicky and sharing food with just my friends or, or with those other guys that are hungry and they actually don't have any food? They're a slave and they have nothing. And I, I've been, I haven't been loving them, reaching out to them, inquiring about how I can help them. Am I one of the weak and sickly ones? I guess it would be too late if you were one of the sleeping ones. But it, am, So it's not like, oh yeah, that's why that happened to that person. No, no, it's about you. Are you loving others? Are you judging yourself? Or are you judging others, condemning them, not forgiving them? That call was to admit their sin, to repent, and then see others restored, as we'll see um, in the next bit. In Matthew, please turn there, Matthew 7, starting in verse 1. Knowing that we're sinners first, it humbles us to help others with love and patience. This is one of Jesus' most comprehensive teachings on judgment in Matthew 7. And it's so important when dealing with a topic like this that we look at the whole counsel of Scripture um, and not just one part because they go, well, see, it says judge not. So that's a full stop command in every circumstance to never judge. And it's like, well, no one can do that. We have to make decisions, right? We must, if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. But now Jesus follows on from that passage here in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. It says, judge not that you, that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When we're, we can only judge righteously when we've been made righteous through being born again by faith, our natural tendency is to judge others rather than ourselves and according to appearance. Jesus used an example of showing this hypocrisy of judging others first without judging yourself. Uh, the irony of the man with a plank or a twig in his eye um, really concerned about that speck in his brother's eye. Now, I don't have the greatest eyesight, but if you had a speck in your eye, I figured I'd have to get pretty close under good light. I would have to scrutinize to find that speck in your eye. I would have to say, hold still, and I'd have to peel back the, the lid. And oh, oh, here we go. I, I, I see that source of irritation. You've got a little speck in your eye. Like, you'd probably have to tell me. I wouldn't notice unless it was, like, oozing or something. But can you imagine, there's a guy with a branch or a twig, some large item stuck in his eye, 
And he comes alongside. He's like, brother, I'm really concerned. Really concerned about you. You've got this little speck in your eye, and it's got to come out. It's got to come out. It's just going to be a source of irritation to you. It could damage and scratch your cornea. Just, go, just going on and on about it. Jesus says, hypocrite, first take that stick out of your eye, remove that twig, then you'll see clearly to deal with your brother's speck that you're so concerned about. And using comparative size, it seems hypocrisy is a bigger problem than whatever that speck was in the other person's eye. Now, where I always got this wrong was I created a third person to this parable, the one who had neither speck nor twig in their eye. But that person doesn't exist. Jesus is the only one who has totally clear vision, no specks, no twigs. So if there's any conflict, know that you're one of these two. There's no third person. Jesus is that third person, but it's not you. Okay? You've got your specks and you have your sticks. But rem make sure you're not the one with the stick who's going to that speck and getting real, oh, I've been praying for this guy. He's got a problem. Make sure you do that to yourself first. Just take a look in the mirror. Take a look in God's word. Make sure that your heart is clean and right before him. It's very dangerous when we judge people, when we bring them under condemnation, because that's what we'll do. Once we judge them as wrong, we'll begin to condemn them. And they haven't yet stood before the Almighty Judge. Who is God? And that's not me or you. And Paul says this to Roman believers in Romans 2.1. He says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You're switched on to that problem in that person's life because you do the same thing. You're, you're intimately acquainted with it. So whatever, he says, you're without excuse because whatever you condemn in someone else, you have the same problem. It may not show itself in the same way, but you have it. You have the exact issue that they have. You just don't see it. Now, our knowledge of God's truth, it does not guarantee that we're walking in it or in his love, forgiving like he's forgiven us. Judging the fault to lie only with others and condemning them, it results in us um, laboring and falling short of the righteousness of God. Because saying, I forgive you, it's a start, but forgiveness comes from the heart. It relieves that person of the burden of them having ever done wrong to you before. So it's not forgiving and forgetting. It's actually knowing what they did but choosing to release them from condemnation. And we can forgive people who haven't admitted they've done wrong because Jesus has forgiven us. Confronted by my own lack of love and my own uh, sinful judgments, I felt a lot like Moses where he said, um, I'll read it. Moses was overwhelmed with the demands of the people. And he, didn't, he knew that it was way beyond him to give food for all these people who were like, give us meat. And he's like, what can I do? These aren't my people. I don't have meat. What, what am I supposed to do, conjure it up in the wilderness? 
So he comes to God and he says in Numbers eleven fifteen, if you treat me like this, please kill me here and now if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. And Paul says a similar thing. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. He, he looks at himself and he realizes that in light of God's goodness and love, he's nothing like it in his natural flesh. And so we have to see our own wretchedness. We have to see um, our own sinfulness so that we can repent and begin to fully appreciate and walk in the, the love and the grace that God's extended to us. And once we have confessed our sins and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that love and grace, all the fruit of the Spirit will begin to flow from our lives. He will see those developing and growing. And when we love and when we forgive others, God will see that we receive his love and forgiveness in abundance, that we have more than we can receive because in God we find all our needs met. And it's so awesome. When you love your enemies, when you love people who spitefully use you and persecute you, God promises to put more love into your life than you can contain. It's, it's kind of like a woman who lives in a village, and there's a, there's a village gossip who said some really hurtful things about her in the past, but she had a need for some grain. She was entertaining, and she comes to this woman's house and says, you know, hey, I'm out of grain. Can I have some? And she looks, and she doesn't have much herself. She's like, well, gives her what she has, and she, she also was expecting visitors, and so she goes to, uh, this is just a story, this is not a real thing, uh, but she goes to the vendor and says, one kilo of grain, please. She has money to pay for a kilo, and uh, the vendor's like, oh, I have exactly what you need, no problem, and uh, you pull the money out to pay, and, and you're a little concerned when the scale is starting to go to two kilos and then three kilos, and you've been to the butcher, and you're like, I want so much. And they're like, oh, is that all right? And you're like, well, I did ask, say, 500 grams. That's like 750. Um, so she's like, you know, I'm a little, cons- okay, I only have enough to pay for one. He's like, oh, oh no, don't worry about it. You don't need to worry about that. Um, money won't be necessary today. And, uh, and you're like, isn't he listening? No, no, I think that's enough. One kilo is fine. And he's like, oh, there's room for more in this. And he starts, you know, it's going to four, five kilos, and you're starting to get concerned about carrying it. When he starts shaking it, he starts pressing it down, he starts trying to cram everything he can into this jar that you've brought. And he's like, oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy to do this. And, uh, and then he's like, oh, I think there's room for a little bit more. And he starts piling it on so it's like spilling over and going everywhere. It's hitting the ground. And you're like, because oh. he has plenty. He has more than enough. You know, that's how God loves us. He loves us like that when we don't deserve it. When we're totally empty and bankrupt of love, he says, I will pour it all into you. Overflowing, pressed down, good measure. Having received all this love from God, are we justified to hoard it? Having received such forgiveness, are we going to hold it like it's a precious thing that we cannot give to others? Now, I think we, we do love a lot like we give money, like we deal with money. You know, we might give what's in our wallet or by a percentage or out of obligation because you were taxed or there's a bill. And if you don't pay the bill... You're going to have to answer for that. 
um, or to buy essentials. So th- these are the ways that we, we, we have money put aside. We have money that we spend. We have, we have things budgeted usually. But Jesus says, love your enemies, bless, give, do good to those who hate you, stop judging and condemning, forgive instead, and be merciful like he is. And when he enables us to do that, we can rejoice knowing that we are his. We are his children. He is our father. It's not just a word that we sing in a song, but it's real. That God's love is in you, and God wants to keep developing and growing his love so that his love would come through you and reach others. And when you hope for nothing in return, when you realize you don't deserve a thing, great is your reward in heaven. That's the consequence. And it's great. Praise the Lord for his goodness and his love to us all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. That while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And that you've given us such extraordinary, exquisite love. And with such abundance, Lord, that we will never lack love or forgiveness because of your grace to us. We do not deserve it. But Lord, we desire that your love would be received by us, it would be walked in, that we'd not justify ourselves by doing the same as everybody else, but that your love would be evident as we pray for those, those enemies, as we choose to, to love those enemies, as we do good to everyone, as we are generous with what you've given us, that we would be compassionate and merciful, that we would deal with that, that stick in our eye or the specks as we become aware of them, even if it's someone with a stick in their eye coming to us about our speck. Lord, help us to be ones who are humble and contrite and want to see that speck removed. And we pray, Lord, you would wash us clean. You would purify us. Lord, uh, do your work through the Holy Spirit in us. Increase our faith that we would give like you give that we would trust you for our future, that we would not withhold any good thing that you have given, that we could pass it along to others and rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that we have an eternity uh, to celebrate you and to worship you, and we can start today. Lord, we thank you. We are grateful, and we are pleased to be called your children and to call you Father. In Jesus' name, amen.